0: Have you ever read a book where the characters just didn't seem like real people? The author of that book felt he was doing a good job, and yet the characters fell flat. When it comes to character creation, sometimes we don't know what we don't know. If you want readers to connect with your characters, your characters must be convincing. They need to seem like real people, even though they are figments of your imagination. Every good novelist is a little bit crazy, but how do you get that crazy to turn into believable characters on the page? How do you craft characters that are not just believable, but who your readers fall in love with and can't wait to see book after book? We'll find out in this episode of The Christian Publishing Show, the podcast for writers who want to honor God through excellent writing. I'm your host, Thomas Umstead, Jr., and our guest today is an international speaker, writing coach, and the best-selling author of The Emotional Thesaurus and other resources for writers. Her books have sold three-quarters of a million copies, and she is passionate about learning and sharing her knowledge with others through Helping Writers Blog and via One Stop for Writers. Becca Puglisi, welcome to The Christian Publishing Show.
1: Thank you so much. I'm very excited to be here.
0: So what makes a character a believable character?
1: I think that there's quite a few things that go into that. But basically, believability, first of all, your character needs to mirror reality. They need to mirror real people. So as much as you can base your character in real psychology and the way that people actually function, the way that their brains work, the way that their emotions work, you're going to get a much more realistic result when you do that because they're going to look and sound and act like real people. So that's kind of the first bit of advice that I like to give people is to make sure that you are doing some research into really understanding just basic psychology. I mean, I don't have a degree in psychology. People know that I'm like the least observant person on the planet. So I have a little bit of a deficit in that area. I'm not super discerning, but anybody can get the basics to understand the baseline for how people function, how they act, how they react. And so Learning a little bit about that and pursuing that learning curve a little bit, I think, helps a lot in building really realistic characters.
0: Learning to listen when people talk, not just listening with your ears, but listening with your eyes. And hopefully you're doing it to actually hear them, but you also are noticing things that you can put in your book, right? And it's like, oh, here are facial expressions that they're making when they're feeling this way. And doing it in real life because... What we see on screen is like this distilled kind of parody version of how people really act. So you actually need to have real friends as an author. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah, that's true. That real life interaction is super helpful because you know your friends, you know who they are, you know, kind of what their sensitivities are and what their triggers are. And so you recognize really how they should be acting, how they should be responding. And when something happens, that's not quite normal. Maybe it's over the top. Maybe it's really understated then you can kind of read in a little bit more to their situation and you recognize that something is off. And so the physical cues are are really important, just being able to see people, how they're responding to the things that are happening. Because we know that people, when we talk, we're not always 100% straightforward. There's always some subtext when we're talking where we don't share everything, we temper things, we are careful about things, but the body especially the voice really shows how people are feeling about the things that they're saying. So when we can take that information and apply it to our characters, then we can make them really nuanced and deep.
0: So let's talk about backstory a little bit, because we as humans don't emerge like Venus from the shell, fully formed, right? We are a product of our experiences. And yet often fictional characters can be that way, right? We Page one, you start with a character and it's as if they never existed before. So there's this practice that authors do, which is where they write some of the story of the various characters before the story starts so that they feel like people that actually exist. Because like before we did this podcast, you got breakfast, you've had a whole life experience leading up to this, right? That brings you to this point, like we're talking before the show, my newborn's not sleeping very well. (laughs) So that's affecting how I'm doing the podcast. And each one of our characters are that same way. So what advice do you have around developing the backstory of your characters?
1: I believe that backstory is crucial. I think that a lot of times when a story falls flat, I think a lot of times it's because there's a problem with the character. And I think that Most of the time, it's because the author has not done all the work exactly, maybe have done some research, but is unclear on certain areas or just hasn't put in enough time, because it really is important to know your character as intimately as you can. We want to know basically who they were before the story started, because at the start of the story, your character is going to have a problem. They're going to be unfulfilled in some way, dissatisfied. Even if it's on a more of a subconscious level. And they're gonna go on this journey throughout the story to to figure out what's wrong and to overcome what is holding them back so that they can achieve that story goal that is going to fulfill them. Well, we have to know who they are at the start of the story, but then we have to know what happened in the past that made them who they are. Because all that stuff that happened in the past is gonna impact their responses, their reactions, the way that they deal with the things that you throw at them in the story. So the backstory piece is really important. It's important to know a lot of different things about your character, but I think that the primary thing that is most formative that we really want to be clear on is the character's emotional wound. That's that thing that happened to them in the past that was so traumatic or awful that it really changed who they are. It created in them a need to avoid that kind of thing from happening again. It's basically, it starts this domino effect of all these different things that happen. And again, this goes back to psychology. This mirrors the way that it it really happens for real people, where you have this horrible thing that happens, and then it changes the character into someone who's different than who they were. And very often, it's somebody who has flaws. They have dysfunctions. They have things that they have adopted in the wake of that emotional wound that they're hoping are going to protect them from it happening again. But what it does is it creates all kinds of problems for them in the current story so that they're unable to achieve that goal, the one that's so important for them in order to be fulfilled. So knowing what happened to your character and how it has impacted them is I think the biggest piece of backstory that authors need to know.
0: So here's an example of this, but not from writing. So a big puzzle as we record this, a lot of people are asking is, why is Russia invading Ukraine? Well, if you want to understand the answer to that, you need to understand Russia's emotional wound as a people, as a nation. And their emotional wound was a guy named Genghis Khan. He conquered Russia and him and his descendants, the Mongols, raped and pillaged Russia for hundreds of years. And it was humiliating. It was this very terrible experience. And finally, this one guy named Ivan pushed the Mongols out of Russia by being really aggressive and he rescued, in their view. The Russian people from the Mongolians and they he is their King Arthur. He's the king that they all want to continue having this really strong, really aggressive bully who can push the bad guys out and keep us safe here at home. And so once you understand that emotional wound, it makes more sense why they're so aggressive to all of their neighbors, because they're actually terrified that the Mongolians are going to come back, even though the Mongolians aren't around anymore. (laughs) Genghis Khan is long dead, but the emotional wound is still there. And I feel like that's often the way it is for us, right? The dog bit us when we were a kid and we're afraid of other dogs, even though those weren't the dogs that bit us when we were kids.
1: Yeah, that's a really good example because So much of the wounding events, the things that happen to us, they're real and they're very often horrible. But the way that we respond to them, sometimes it's not a logical response. We are so terrified that it's going to happen again that we start looking for ways to keep it from happening again. And one of the ways to do that is to assign blame. This is something that we do a lot when something bad happens. We want to know what caused it, because if we know what caused it, then we can take steps to stop it from happening again. And as we know, a lot of trauma, it's not your fault. There's nothing that you could have done to stop it. But- The brain really wants to know how do I keep it from happening again? And so it it very often will fill in the gaps where the logic doesn't make sense. I was too gullible or I can't be trusted or I'm not worthy of love. All of these things come out of emotional wounds. And when a character starts believing a really big lie like that about themselves or about other people or about the way the world works as a whole, it changes everything. It changes their viewpoint of themselves, their viewpoint of other people, how they interact with others. And it causes them to put up guards. And a lot of times those are in the form of of flaws. Somebody who was carjacked because they stopped to help somebody. They may see being trusting. Now, that's not a positive trait. That's the flaw now. It's a weakness. I have to get rid of that and I have to replace it with being hyper alert or with not trusting people, not taking them at their word. It's just little things like that that we adopt and our characters are going to adopt in the wake of an emotional wound that are then going to impact everything. It's going to impact their personal relationships, how they function and their productivity at work and at school. All kinds of different areas of their life are going to become problematic because of that. And so absolutely, knowing that emotional wound, you can see how the person or the character is going to be changed because of it. And then you can see what's holding them back in the story. And then you know what you have to be working towards, because that's the kind of the second piece of the character arc, right? The first part, at the start of the story, we can see what's wrong with the character, but the character can't see it. They may see actually that their weakness is actually a strength, you know, that hyper alertness and not trusting people straight off. They see that as, oh, this is a good way to be. But over the course of the story, they're going to have to recognize that that response to what happened to them is causing their problems. And it's actually something that needs to be changed and fixed. And so then the last part of the story is going to be about recognizing it and then changing from those negative coping mechanisms to positive coping mechanisms in order to be able to respond in healthier ways that are not going to limit the character. And then they're going to be able to to move forward into health and growth and succeed at whatever it is that they want.
0: That's really good. And one of the interesting things about emotional wounds is that we're often not aware of our emotional wounds, right? Like, this is why we go to counseling. This is why therapists exist. How do you incorporate that emotional wound into the character, into the story, and have it still be authentic? So it's not like, as you know, Bob, you know, you were hit by a car when you were six, right? I I can see a lot of bad ways to do this. So how do you do it well?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I do a monthly first page contest at our blog where people submit first pages and I just offer them my feedback. And it's a common mistake because people know they recognize how important the emotional wound is and how the reader really needs to know what it is that has happened to the character. And so they try to get it right into the beginning or they use the opening pages as the place to show what happened when really that's what's happening before the character's story. And it is part of the backstory and needs to be kind of kept in that area. So the best way to show the emotional wound, in my opinion, is, is just that. It's to show it. You know, we talk a lot in writing circles about showing and not telling. Telling is obviously coming right out and explaining. It's stopping the character's current story to explain something that happened to them in the past. And that is almost always, there are times when telling is 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 a good idea, but most of the time telling actually interrupts the story. It slows the pace. It pulls the reader out of the story because it puts them at a distance. They're sitting back listening to somebody talk at them instead of them being in the story, walking in the character shoes right along with them as things are happening. So showing brings them in really close. And the way that you can do that with an emotional wound is to drop the breadcrumbs. As they're going through their story, you show them being triggered by something. You show an overblown response to something that for most people would not be that big of a deal. It's little hints like that, conversations that they're having where things come up and they avoid. They turn the topic of conversation when this person's name is mentioned. All those little hints are gonna act like puzzle pieces for readers so that as they're reading, They can see this happened, this happened, this happened, and then they put them together and they are starting to get a picture already. First, it's just, okay, we know something bad happened and okay, now we know that it was related to this person or this place. And as they go along, they're slowly figuring out what that emotional wound is. I think that that's often the most effective way because it doesn't interrupt the story. You know, the story is still going strong and the reader is firmly embedded in it as they're learning all of these things. People do use flashbacks to show in its entirety what happened. Most of the time, I think that's most effective when the reader has already figured it out. When it's kind of towards the end, you've already had a chance to show and, and pull them deeply into the character's experience before you reveal. But very often, I think if you've done your work and you've shown effectively, showing that event, I think, is not always necessary.
0: Yeah, Flashbacks are really tricky because when done poorly, they totally kill the tension that you're building up in the story because you're wondering what's going to happen what's going to happen and suddenly you're 20 years earlier and like i don't care about 20 years later earlier is he going to fall off the building but when it's done well it can be really powerful and i'm thinking of the movie it's a wonderful life so the protagonist is george bailey what does he want he wants to go and see the world he wants to go and do things and what is holding him back who's the antagonist It's his brother, right? His brother keeps doing adventurous things instead of George Bailey and George Bailey gets hurt. And in this case, the emotional wound is also a physical wound, right? The very first story with the boys in the ice is the whole story of the film in one little scene where the brother's going off and doing the exciting thing and George Bailey has to go and rescue him. And as a result, he injures his ear. And what's interesting is that Potter actually wants what Bailey wants. He wants to help Bailey go see the world. He wants to give him money to go see the world. And the crux of the story is A Man Against Himself, where George Bailey's kind of way of healing from his emotional wound is realizing that staying home is actually the great adventure, that being a good husband and a, a good father and a good member of the community is the true adventure, not going and seeing the world and having a harem of of women, which was what he was dreaming of in in the beginning. And so it's interesting because there's different ways of addressing the wound, right? It's not that he got rid of the wound. He actually realized it wasn't a wound in the first place.
1: And that's, I think, a key distinction to make because most people don't overcome their wounds. They don't recognize them, and and then all of a sudden they're okay with it and it's not affecting them anymore. They usually learn to minimize the damage. They see it, first of all, for what it is and the truth behind what happened. And they see that lie that they believe about themselves and they recognize it as a lie and they replace it with the truth. And we all know the importance of truth in real life and for fictional characters, that the truth is gonna set you free. So you have to be able to look realistically at what happened and the results of it. And a lot of times it's that process that allows them to recognize the wound and they're able to deal with it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't go away, that it's no longer traumatic, that it's no longer a problem because that's, again, I think not very realistic. So just being able to minimize it and keep it from train wrecking their life and hamstringing them as they're trying to move through and achieve their goals. That's really all that you need.
0: One of the things I like about this tool for character creation is that it forces you to create characters that are going to change. Because if you create a character at the beginning of a story with an emotional wound and then don't address that emotional wound through the whole book, it's really irritating. Like You might be able to get away with that with a few characters, but if you do that with all of your characters, they're all static and everyone ends the story just as messed up, and miserable as they were at the beginning. <laughs> That's so unsatisfying. It's going to be unsatisfying to you as the author. So you're going to be compelled for your character to go through a transformation process. And so instead of you artificially changing them, this causes them to change in really organic ways to the character.
1: Yeah, it's. I think it's cool because it works for a lot of different kinds of stories. I mean, obviously, I think in the past, it was much more common to have characters with flat arcs, where there was no internal change. And we still see that sometimes you look at the original Indiana Jones, you look at a lot of the old James Bond, they don't really have an internal focus because the whole focus of the story is the goal achievement. It's them finding what they need to find, doing what they need to do. But I do think that people respond on a subconscious level to the hero's journey. I mean, that's why we have seen it cropping up in stories in all different genres and all different cultures for How many years? Because we recognize that this is real and we see ourselves in that hero because we all have had these experiences and these wounds. It also works though, if you're writing a tragedy. You know, if you're writing a story that doesn't have a happy ending where the character, they recognize what's wrong with them and they may start taking steps and start moving in the right direction, but it's just too much. It's too much change. They fall back on what's comfortable, even though they know that it's not working and they end up at the end of the story, the same place they were or in a worse place than they were at the start. But the process is still the same. So knowing that important piece of backstory about your character can really enable you to bring to life characters in all different kinds of stories, no matter where you want them to end up.
0: That's right, because how somebody responds to their emotional wound determines whether it's a tragic story or not. And you can also use it for your villains to make your villains more believable, right? Why is Gollum such a compelling villain? Because he's such a clear emotional wound, right? And if you look at the story from his perspective, right, he's the, his one source of happiness is the ring, and that's the lie that he's believing. So the reality is that the ring is poison, and it's corrupting him, and it's evil. And it, his emotional wound was, you know, killing and taking the w- ring when he was young. And the whole story, he's trying to get the ring back. He's trying to get the ring back. He's trying to get the ring back. And finally he gets it back and it kills him. <laughs> he falls into the fire and he dies. And with his last effort, trying to save the ring that he loves so much. And he's basically given over to his sin. And we as the reader get to see the consequence of that. And it's a really powerful, much more powerful than if he had been redeemed in the end and went back with frodo and sam.
1: Yeah, villains I think we don't give them enough credit. I think that for a while the trend was for villains the more evil they are that's what makes them really scary. And so they didn't necessarily need a story. You know, if you just make them really powerful and really daunting, then that's enough. You know, I mean you look like the the xenomorph from alien. I mean, that is terrifying. That's a really really strong villain, but for me the ones and I think that that other people agree on the, for the most part, that when you have a villain that there's a reason for the way that they are, then you start to, f- you feel for them just like a tiny bit, not necessarily rooting for the villain, but a little bit of empathy is developed. And, and that is is actually a really good thing because it creates some conflict for the viewer. Like they recognize that this is a bad person. We don't want them to win, but oh my gosh, look what happened to them. I mean, this is why they are, you know, if they could just do this, then they could actually come out of this life that they have. So doing the backstory work for villains, and I think very often for love interests too, if you're writing especially a romance, that's important too, because your main character and your love interest in romance are gonna have goals. And there are gonna be things that are blocking them individually from achieving their goals. And you have to know the kind of that setup and that story for each person.
0: Yeah, a great example of this, is, or at least my example of it, Thanos as a villain his emotional wound was he was on a planet it was overcrowded it consumed its resources and everybody ended up dying and if only someone had had the will to kill off the surplus population the planet would have continued to thrive and be happy and so that's his wound seeing his planet die and all of his loved ones die and the lie that he believes is we just got to kill off the surplus population and somebody has got to be strong enough to do this evil thing so that good can flourish that's his worldview, and it's a powerful worldview and it's a compelling enough worldview yeah. that in endgame he's actually the protagonist he's the one moving the plot forward they make the villain the protagonist and they make all of the avengers the antagonists, trying to stop thanos from doing the thing that he's wanting to do they flip the script completely and it, it makes him a really compelling and really fun villain because you understand why he's doing what he's doing
1: that's a great example
0: i would be remiss if i didn't ask about the emotional thesaurus because we're talking about what to do, right? You have emotional wound and and insert those powerful emotions into the story so that the story is more emotionally resonant. But the tool for how to do that is often using the right words and using good emotional words. So talk to us a little bit about what the emotional thesaurus is and how to use it.
1: Yeah, we have the emotional wound thesaurus, which actually highlights over a hundred different dramatic events and how you can. Use those, and it just provides some basic research for figuring out what might have happened to your character. And we talk a lot in the front matter about how to show that emotional wound, but you're absolutely right that emotions are really what drive a story. If we can adequately convey the character's emotions, whether it's about what has happened to them in the past or what's happening to them right now in the current story, then we have a much better chance of tapping into the reader's emotions. That's how they make that connection, because they see a character who is struggling, who is going through something difficult, and because the emotions are conveyed effectively, the reader gets an emotional echo, because they know a time when they have felt that way or have been in a similar situation, and it creates that empathy bond that makes the reader want to continue reading, to make sure that the character is going to be okay. So the emotion thesaurus basically has... Over 130 different emotions that your character could experience at any some point in the story. And it shares how you can show those emotions. Because we all have, I think at some point in our writing journey, we realize that we are telling emotions instead of showing them. It's a universal problem that that everybody has to address at some point where we realize my character is always clenching their fists or shuffling their feet or shrugging their shoulders. And I just don't seem to have any other way of showing what that emotion looks like. Well, the Emotion the source we wrote out of our own need as authors, Angela Ackerman and I, for more ways to show emotion. So it's got physical cues that your character might exhibit when they're feeling emotion, their thought processes, mentally what they're going to be going through. It also talks about the visceral responses, the things that are happening internally that other people can't see, but you can share as the author in a first viewpoint character, what's happening to them inside, those are often very telling in terms of emotions because everybody has experienced the drop of the stomach, the fluttering butterflies, or the racing heartbeat. We all know exactly what the character's feeling when we start seeing those kinds of responses. So the emotion of the source is really meant to be a brainstorming tool. know, in the scene, this is gonna happen to my character, they're gonna be feeling blank. And I want ideas on how I can show that instead of just saying Joe was angry. So we go and we look at the emotion of the source and it gives us lots of different options for how to convey that emotion. But mostly it's a jumping off point. It's a way to start the gears turning because the best emotion in fiction is emotion that is tailored to the character. It's a character where you have explored, again, who they are, their personality, their backstory. So you know their emotional baseline, the way that they typically respond to what's happening to them. And so then you can look at that character and what has happened to them and are they more demonstrative or reserved and all the questions that kind of give you an idea for who they are emotionally. And then you can tailor their responses so that they make sense for that character and they are specific to that character. And that's going back to that realistic piece that we discussed at the very start. Because the more you can customize what you're writing, obviously, to your character, then the more realistic they're going to be.
0: It's kind of like you're stuck cooking the same meals over and over again. Like, what do you do if you're cooking the same meals over and over again and everyone's tired of the meals, including you? You get a cookbook. And what's crazy is reading through the cookbook, you may not actually even make any of the meals in the cookbook. Just reading through the cookbook will remind you of other Mm. meals that you used to make of old. You're like, oh, yeah, I know how to make such and such. I could try that again. And suddenly you've brought new life into your story. And I, I will say there's one series of books that I absolutely loved, but they the author could have really used this book because it was a military book. So you're not looking for a lot of emotional right. resonance, but you're looking for some. And yet every character was grim, gazing grimly over the battlefield. Both the good guys and the bad guys, everybody was grim. It's was like, is there any other word <laughs> that you could use? Like, grim in what way? Like, there are more emotions on a battlefield than just grim and grimly. And if the author had just had this book it, to help expand their vocabulary, I think he could have drawn out some of the character a little bit more and the battles that sort have of had more meaning as the characters had more differentiation between them.
1: Yeah. I mean, it really is a universal problem. We, when Angela and I started as critique partners, we were critiquing each other work and we were seeing in our own work that our characters were doing this. They were doing the same thing over and over and over. Oh my gosh, there has to be other ways. And so we just started making lists basically with different emotions of the things that, you know, could be happening so that we would have more options. And fast forward, we started writers helping writers the blog and started sharing it there one emotion per week and discovered holy mackerel, like, Everybody struggles with this. This is something that is a really common problem, and at the time, there was there was no ready solution for it. So I do think that it is really helpful, again, if you're not pulling phrases out and plunking them down in your story, because that's not going to make sense for your character a lot of the time, but using it to figure out new ways to breathe life into your character's emotional responses and to make sure that they are making sense for the character, it really does help. We've got nine books in our series now covering lots of different topics of writing. And this was the first one, and it's, it's still the bestseller. I mean, it's the one that everybody goes to because it's its a big problem. And I think that it, it does provide a, a good solution for people.
0: I have a book on headlines. It's like a collection of the best headlines ever written. Oh. And I find it very valuable when I'm trying to come up with a good title for a blog post or for a podcast To look through this book and I don't think I've yet used any of the actual headlines from the book but just the act of seeing all of the different headlines gets the gears turning for like oh I could use a little bit of this one a little bit of this one I end up creating something new and something really useful and so this is not a tool to like get someone to write like you It's a tool to get the creative juices going and get out of that mental rut. Because often we keep, just like with cooking, we go back to what we know, and it's really easy to get stuck there. And just a little bit of diversity in our reading and in our thinking can pop us out of that rut, and suddenly we're on a totally new path to much better writing.
1: Yeah, one thing I want to say, too, that's a really good exercise is to make note when you're reading of passages that do this really well authors who are conveying emotion in a way that you had never thought about saying it before I have a spiral notebook that I keep by my bed and when I'm reading if something jumps out at me I just jot down the phrase or the sentence and then I go back when I'm stuck in my own writing and I can't figure out how to get it across the way I want to I look at what other successful authors have done and I just break it down I deconstruct it how did they say this in a different way what is different about it And that's been super helpful for me in figuring out not just how to show emotion, but how to show setting descriptions, how to show the physical characteristics of characters instead of just coming right out and saying her hair was brown and her eyes were blue. That has been a game changer really for me. It's just noting successful authors and making note of what they're doing and then taking some time to study it and seeing how, what they're doing. And then I can apply those techniques when I'm struggling myself.
0: Kind of like when you're going out to eat and you're ordering off a menu and you try a new dish and you're like, this is a really cool dish. I could make something like this. I remember eating Thai food and realizing that they're constantly using peanuts in really fun ways. And so one time I'm doing Mm. stir fry and I'm tired of the same stir fry. I'm like, what would happen if I just drop some peanut butter in here? I just want to see. And it was incredible. (laughs) I really liked it. My kids, uh, it wasn't a hit with all of them. Some of them (laughs) did. Um, But it was a totally different flavor from a totally different ingredient that I would have never thought. Oh yeah, I'm going to put peanut butter and stir fry. And yet there's a whole cuisine based around that. And no, I didn't do it very well, but it was different. <laughs> and I, I could have, you know, gotten some recipes and done it better. But this is one of the things that's interesting. As you study craft, you start to read books differently. You start to see how the pieces fit together. You start to see the decisions that those authors made and the craft books help turn the good fiction that you read into more craft books because you start to read it for more than just the story. You start to see, oh, here's the protagonist. Here's the protagonist's emotional wound. You start to have a a vocabulary for understanding what's happening. And that then starts to inspire your writing more. So this is one of the things you have to read the craft books to make the good fiction useful. (laughs) Because otherwise, it's just like, oh, that was a good story. You learn anything? No, not really. I liked it. (laughs) Do you know why? Not really.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, because as readers, we can see when something's good and we see when something's bad. But it's not until you start Really digging in and understanding and researching and learning that you can identify why, you know, what actually went wrong, what should have been done differently. I know Angela and I took a year off when we were first starting writing back in the beginning and we decided, okay, this year we're going to read a bunch of craft books and we're going to do them separately, but at the same time. And then we're going to come together and we're going to talk about them. And I think we read like McKee's story. We read Writing Screenplays That Sell by Michael Hague, which I still is still a go-to for me self-editing for fiction writers. We read just a whole bunch. And just that year, I feel like our knowledge just exploded. Like The learning curve shortened dramatically because we were intentional about it. And it helps when you're doing it with someone else. There's more accountability and you're able to bounce ideas off of each other and verify certain things that you couldn't quite clarify in your own words and that was a really exciting year. I mean, that really jump-started our writing. And so the craft part of writing is obviously insanely huge, very important.
0: We have a course called The Five-Year Plan to Becoming a Best-Selling Author. And in year one, you each student reads a craft book every month and then writes a short story trying to implement what they learned from that craft book. Nice. And often of just the first year is revolutionary because a lot of people, they read like a craft book. (laughs) And then they started writing a book. It's like, no, you're going to read one on structure. You're going to read one on characters. You're going to read one on dialogue. And sometimes they don't like it, but it forces them to think differently. And they're like, no, I'm not going to do outlining. I'm more of a pantser. But at least now they are making that decision with understanding of what's on the other side. They wrote a short story using the right by the seat of the pants method. And now sometimes they're like, oh, I like it or, oh, I don't like it. And But doing it and reading it really is transformative. Real quick, walk us through your other thesaurus books. Because the emotion of thesaurus, that's just your first one. You've gone on to write many other thesauruses for writers.
1: Yeah, we have the emotion thesaurus. And then when we wrote that one and it took off, we thought, oh, well, what other areas of writing do we need help with personally? This is our process as we look at what are we struggling with and what do we need help with? Because it's likely that other people need help too. And we recognized characterization was a big piece. So we wrote a set of books. One is on positive traits And the other is on negative traits. And it basically talks about where those traits come from. When this goes back to backstory again, that your character is the way they are, not because you picked a bunch of traits that you thought were interesting and you threw them all together. They come from somewhere. So it talks about all the different places that traits come from and then how you can, again, show your character's personality through their actions, through their responses, through their speech, through the way that they talk, instead of just telling people he was this way. So we did characters and then we did a set on settings. So we have rural settings and urban settings that explore through the five senses, all the different things that you might see, smell, taste here at those places. So that if you want to write about a sleepaway camp and you obviously are an adult and you can't go to a sleepaway camp, you can use that as a reference to help you create multi-sensory settings. And we talk a lot in those books about the importance of showing the setting, of what the setting can do for your story beyond just provide a place for the character. There's so much more. It can provide mood and foreshadowing and characterization and lots of different things. Next, I believe, was Emotional Wounds. And then we did a book on occupations to explore characters' jobs and how they contribute to the story and why characters might choose certain occupations Again, it ties into lots of different parts of characterization. Our latest book was on conflict. The Conflict Thesaurus came out in the fall and explores just a bunch of different conflict scenarios. And we talk in the front matter about how conflict plays into a character arc because conflict provides choices that have consequences. And that's really how you get your character moving along in the direction that you want them to go towards a certain decision, a certain change that has to be made. And we could not explore enough of the conflict material in that one book. So we're doing a second volume in the fall. Very often we call them the show don't tell database just because they all deal with different aspects of how to show instead of tell, because we really believe that that's that's the key to pulling readers in and, and really taking your writing to that next level.
0: Uh, So tell us a little bit about how that online subscription works. When you pay for the online subscription, does it give you access to all of the books worth? And is it searchable?
1: We actually have two separate offerings. We have Writers Helping Writers. That's our blog. And that's where you can go to get information about our books. And it has links to the different places where you can buy the books. And that's obviously our blog, which has been around since 2008 and has lots of information on different writing topics. One Stop for Writers is a subscription-based website that we created that takes the Entry content from all of our thesauruses, even the ones that are not published. We actually have seven additional thesauruses at Writers Helping Writers that just have never made it into a book yet. And so we took all of that content and we put it at One Step for Writers, and it's all in a big database online. So you can search, it's all hyperlinked, and you can find lots and lots of information for whatever it is that you are looking for, if it's a certain setting or a certain kind of conflict or a certain emotional wound. Different personality traits. And then we created tools there that use the content from the books. So like the character builder that I mentioned, it pulls directly from emotional wounds from the wound thesaurus, positive traits from the positive trait thesaurus, and it uses all that information. We have a story structure tool that helps you map out your story using Michael Haig's six-step story structure. We have scene mapping tools and timeline tools, an idea generator to help if you need a little bit of a kickstart. And we just created a storyteller's roadmap that takes people through the process from start to finish of, you know, I have a story idea, but I don't know how to get it into an actual story. That was the biggest question that people had. They would come to the site and they'd see the great resources and be like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to get my thoughts down on paper. So we wrote the Storyteller's Roadmap to provide, here's what you do in the planning, drafting, and revision stages to get from story idea to finished product. So it's basically, there's two different things there. Writers Helping Writers really is the informational piece of our puzzle. And then One Stop for Writers takes the information and helps you apply it in a more practical way. So because it has more information, we're constantly adding to it, adding new resources and new tools and things. There is a subscription fee for that one.
0: And when in doubt, you can always just get started by buying The Emotional Thesaurus on Amazon, and we'll have a link to that. Becca, real quick before we go, let's say we have an author, they're struggling with their characters all being really samey. They all seem really similar to each other. What encouragement would you have for that author in making those characters, their own people, different from each other and different from the author?
1: Uh, well, first, I would say to start looking around and looking at different people that you know, pulling from real life, looking at different combinations of character traits, different combinations of this person in this situation. Because a lot of the sameness is because we have the same people are in the same situations that we've always seen. So just removing one factor, replacing it with another. Maybe it's where they live. Maybe it's their level of education growing up. Maybe it's whatever wound they have experienced that's a good way to mix it up. And the way to do that a lot of times is to look at real people and see the dichotomy in each individual person, the traits that they have that seem like, how is this person this way and this way? This like doesn't make sense that they go together. Somebody who has an emotional wound that causes them to do really quirky things that make total sense because of what has happened to them. So again, it's a matter of digging into the backstory and really figuring out who your character is and also Combining them with what you know about real life and using what you've seen in real life to inspire you to do things, to make different combinations and come up with somebody really, really new and interesting.
0: And we'll have links to all of her books as well as to Writers Helping Writers and OneStopForWriters.com. I do encourage you to check those out. These are the kinds of resources that it really helps take your writing to the next level And compared to having an editor underline every time you say grimly, this is way cheaper. So do check it out. And if you want to check out the five-year plan for becoming a best-selling author, you can find it at authormedia.com. Patrons of The Christian Publishing Show save 50% off the price of the course. The Christian Publishing Show is a production of Author Media. This episode's audio was edited by William Umstadt. The blog post is by Shauna Lettler, and the producer is Laurie Christine. And I'm Thomas Umstadt, Jr., your host. You can find the blog version at christianpublishingshow.com slash 129. Thank you for listening, and live long and prosper.